I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. In 2010, when the Financial Reporting Council, or FRC, launched the UK Stewardship Code in the wake of the global financial crisis, it established an international benchmark for stewardship. A number of other countries, including Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Denmark followed suit. In fact, many of them used the UK Stewardship Code as a template to architect and inform their own efforts. The European Union also adopted a shareholder rights directive, which includes many of the elements found in these stewardship codes. So what is a stewardship code? It's a set of principles used by institutional investors to enhance the means in which they engage with companies, vote at shareholder meetings, and provide transparency to their investment process. And the newly revised UK Stewardship Code, which came into effect this past January, now moves beyond the formation of policy towards much stronger ambitions. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. It begins with an interview with Jen Sisson and Claudia Chapman of the UK Financial Reporting Council. Jen is the FRC's Chief of Staff, who oversees the outreach efforts with the investor community. Claudia is the FRC's Corporate Governance Policy Advisor. But since the new code touches on so many new areas, stakeholders, and asset classes, I'm also including a discussion among practitioners following this FRC interview. It combines three different perspectives, that of an asset owner represented by Michael Marshall at LGPS Central, a consultant represented by Honor Fell at Reddington, and a fixed income focused asset manager represented by Mylen Nago at Blue Bay Asset Management. So keep listening for that discussion. Welcome to the show, Jen and Claudia. It's great to have both have you here. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be Thanks, here. Jason. Excellent. Jen, let's start out by, by talking or at least describing what the FRC is. Why, what is it and why is it important? Well, the FRC actually plays quite a number of roles in, in the UK market. So we are the audit regulator. So we set the audit standards and then we uh, regulate how statutory audits are done um, of public interest entities. And we also look after sort of how the profession regulates itself and audit. Uh, we set the uh, guidance on strategic reporting in the UK. So that's all the kind of non-financial reporting front half of an annual report. And we do oversight and inspections of how companies are reporting against IFRS. And then we also have an enforcement function to so are able to take action against misconduct uh, for members of the uh, the profession in their role as either accountants or as auditors. But I think really most relevant for today, the FRC is the home of the UK Corporate Governance Code and the Stewardship Code. So these are the two codes that work together to support the sort of framework for governance and stewardship in the UK. So how boards should run companies and how uh, responsible investors should uh, steward their assets. It's worth talking about the influence mm. of the code since a number of countries, South Korea, Japan, uh, to mention a few, have certainly used it as a model. Yeah, that's right. So the UK Stewardship Code way back in 2010 was the first of its kind anywhere in the world. Um, and so we had a small set of revisions in 2012. And pretty much since then, the code has been a model for other stewardship codes around the world. And there are lots of them now. Uh, what we started to see, particularly with codes, for example, in Japan or the Netherlands, is 
actually people taking the UK code as a model and then adding stuff to it. So actually, by the time we started our revision, there were one or two codes around the world that were a bit ahead of ours on things like ESG integration, on understanding of the sort of resources for stewardship. So one of the things we wanted to do with our revision was say, wow, we've had all this international influence, but the market has moved on a fair bit, right? The the PRI, for example, has become a much bigger and more influential uh, organization. And so we needed to make sure that we put the UK code right back at the forefront with our recent review. And Claudia, so let's talk about the new, newly revised UK stewardship code. What was behind some of the rigor around the reporting? Um, what's the spirit of it? Yeah, so the, the, what we found with the 2012 code, it was always um, the expectations were policy statements. So in order to become a signatory to the code, you stated what you were going to do to fulfill that, that um, principle. And there was guidance that supported that. But what we found is, you know, we got to a stage where um, it didn't really give enough information about what um, investors were doing to fulfill those principles. What were the activities that they were undertaking to, to meet those principles? And then what was the outcome? What was you know, the impact of, of, of that? So we felt that it just needed to, to evolve and, and to continue to, to push the sort of, I guess, profession and standard of stewardship forward. And what influenced that? that revision was it was it asset owner feedback was it as jen said other codes that started reflecting this so we we i'd say it's really our own internal assessment you know it was it's it's a, a kind of policy development um cycle you know you 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 implement policy and then you iterate you you feed on whether or not it's been effective and what the next steps are and we wanted to continue to lead in this area. So we undertook a, an exercise um, to tier uh, existing signatory statements back in 2015 and 16. And, and the market responded really well when we said these are the areas that you needed to improve. Um, but then again, we just saw plateauing and, and statements not being reviewed on a, on a regular enough basis. And actually, you know, not, not any criticism necessarily of... Of, of signatories, but the market moved on. You know, we saw stewardship reporting evolving in the marketplace, responsible investment reports, active ownership reports, and, and in some respects, the, the code is playing catch up with the best practice in the marketplace. Yeah. The code has never been strictly prescriptive, but it definitely feels like it's, it's, a, it's a more... I want to call it a rigid, robust, robust yeah, yeah. right? Uh, a set of, set of, uh, of guidance. Yeah, and it, definitely that's the case. And, and the, the, the way I look at it is if you actually read the, the principles that we've set out, they're sort of fundamental truths. We've not, we don't have the word should in the principles. That people don't necessarily notice that. And that's because we're not being directive that a company should do this. No, effective stewardship is doing, you know, principles 1 through to 12. You should be able to apply these. The way in which you apply the principles will differ for your business and could be more, the reporting expectations may be more aligned to sort of a comply or explain um, system where, you know, if you've got a justification for not fulfilling a reporting expectation, what we're seeking to understand is why, you know, why you've chosen the approach that you've chosen to stewardship, why it's appropriate for your business. If not, what have you done instead? You know, how have you reflected on the actions that you've taken? Have you achieved the outcome that you set out to? And what are you going to do differently as a result? It's about continuous improvement and differentiating your business and demonstrating a true commitment to, to looking after the assets entrusted to your care. That's right, because I think it's important to remember 
the FRC is not the intended audience of the stewardship report, right? The report is for customers, potential customers, for beneficiaries. What we're trying to do is get people to say, this is what we do. And this is what we've actually done. And these are the outcomes. And this is what we're going to do going forward. So it's about trying to support that market for stewardship and, and bring that transparency. It's not about us saying there is one way to do it. But what we're saying is we think these are the things you need to have considered and that you should be explaining to get the message across about what is your approach. And then really, we think there'll be a, there'll be a huge variety in what people report on and how they do it. And that will evolve over time. Well, let's talk about the mechanics. The code is officially in effect as of January 1st of this year. So what do existing signatories need to think about uh, over the year and what do potentially new signatories need to work on? So the interesting thing is we're starting from um, from a, a zero baseline. So all those that are signatories to the 2012 code, that list is essentially frozen or, or shortly will be. We've had a few um, applications that we said we'd accept up until the end of December of of. 2019, um, but we're going to freeze that list so that you can still see who who is a list um, of the signatories. But the the decision about new signatories is going to be based on the reports that um, we receive uh, following an, a year of applying the code. So the code took effect on the first of January, and if you choose to apply it from that period of time, then you can do so. And then if you choose to report at the earliest opportunity, then we need to have that report by the 31st of March 2021. But this, I know, is something of concern to to, to some um, stakeholders. Is you know they're worried about what if I don't make the first list? Well, there might be a valid reason for you not being on that first list, and you might want to communicate that early to your to your clients or beneficiaries. You know, perhaps the the reporting timeframe that we've set out to be in the first list doesn't align to your report, or perhaps there's information that you need to receive from a third party, an agent. Um, a manager if you're if you're an asset owner that you want to feed into your stewardship report and you don't want to make that application straight away so that's fine what we're thinking about is having sort of quarterly windows for reporting and that list will then just get added to it won't be like a a a new list that's announced every quarter you'll just get added to the list of signatories yeah i mean look from our perspective the more the merrier right we would love to have we'd love if everybody wanted to be a signatory but we need the signatories to meet the requirements to do that right and everybody isn't going to be able to run at the same pace and that's okay um but we wouldn't want people to be kind of worried about that more to just sort of think about what is the process what do i need to do internally to get the data to get this report done to get it signed off and then to get it published and i think you know companies do it it's basically an annual report, right? So it's, it's probably as much as anything about getting yourself into the rhythm of how to go about preparing it, right? Yeah. And it'll become easier over time. And I think the thing that, that prospective signatories need to be thinking about now, you know, we're in January, it's a great time to be thinking about it, is when it comes to the end of the year, how am I going to demonstrate how I've applied this principle? And thinking about, particularly when you think about governance and resourcing, What do I need to do differently? How do I need to structure my business differently in order to integrate stewardship and investment? I'm curious, as we roll out this new code, how much is the LGPS, like you mentioned, uh, the local government pension schemes, how much have they helped inform the way this has been developed or you're thinking? I mean, they're going to be, no doubt, a powerful force uh, uh, for, for, for changing behavior around this. 
Well, the, the, the pools are, are hugely um, useful, or, or certainly some of them. You know, they're, they're um, very progressive and they're very engaged and, um, and they understand the sort of resourcing challenges that their underlying funds have. And also they're in very different positions because of the, the, the transfer of, of, of funds and investment to the pools. Mm. So they have, they have been hugely influential and we want to support particularly the underlying funds um, and thinking about how can they rely and, um, on, their, on their pools and hold their pools to account because that's where the responsibility ultimately lies. Yeah. Look, I think one thing we should say um, from an FRC perspective is the pools, the broader asset owner community, both in the UK and, and elsewhere in the world, and, and certainly the asset management community, have been hugely helpful for us. So for over the last two years, between Claudia and I and colleagues, we've had hundreds of meetings with current and potential signatories and with representative groups and interest groups. And we found the actually the response to the uh, outreach and consultation we did on the code enormously helpful. Now, it's been a bit of a journey. And anyone who's been in any of those meetings will know that, I guess, the drafting came a long way from the beginning to the end. But that's great, actually. And we think, you know, if you look even at the definition of stewardship that we came up with, we got to where we got to because we were able to have such constructive dialogue and actually understanding what the asset owner view of what good stewardship is. Yeah, and our focus is very much on building our asset owner um, base, but also the asset owner demand. So not necessarily just the signatories, but you know the the, the driver, a, lot, a big driver for current sign up is that that asset owners have put a requirement in a, in an RFP. Yeah, I've certainly seen that under the old code, the expectation yeah. that you're a signatory. But I would imagine again that must grow, you know, in terms of expectations. Mm. Let's. Let's sort of unpack a little bit of the language within this new code because it's 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 quite interesting and, and quite radical in a sense. So, Cla- Claudia, uh, let's talk about sort of how the notion of of stewardship ha- has expanded within this. And in particular, I guess I find it interesting that the idea that the purpose of an organization, in tandem with its beliefs, culture, and strategy, should provide a, a larger benefit not just to the economy but also to the environment and society. I mean, again, it's it's holistic and pretty radical in a sense. Yeah, I think we just felt that so much has changed and so much is changing in in the landscape in which we operate. So we were very much um, very much thinking of our own purpose as the, the Financial Reporting Council and, and who do we serve and our public interest remit. And we're very keen to connect the the beneficiary, for want of a better word, of the code um, to be UK savers, pensioners, or beneficiaries. You know, that's who we see as, as one of the primary audiences. And and to go into the sort of expansion of, of asset class point, and quite what you asked, but because of the, the declining investment of, in UK listed PLC and the extension to investment in, in other asset classes, you know, we, we felt that you're only then looking after a decreasing proportion of the, the capital invested by UK pensioners and savers. And also, you're seeing a growing increase in expectation that it's not just about pure financial return or not financial return at any cost. We want to reflect the changes that the, the Law Commission had, um, had sort of spearheaded in fiduciary duty and the fact that financially material, environmental, social and governance factors should be considered by trustees. An interesting way that I've heard people talk about it is you've got your uh, retirement 
funds, and then you've also got the world you're going to retire in. And, and both of those things are important. And, you know, the real point of stewardship is that it's for the end beneficiary, right? It's for the, the investor or the saver. And so we do believe a broader definition, getting people to think, signatories to think of this stuff in the round is important because that's what is really actually useful to the person this is for at the end of the day. I think it's a fantastic inclusion, that, that word, uh, purpose. I, I hear some other companies, Unilever talks about purpose and purposefulness, but, but you don't hear it much within the asset management industry, but it certainly needs to be talked more. So one of the drivers was definitely the review to the UK Corporate Governance Code and a sort of upweighting focus on purpose and a, a more meaningful disclosure of purpose and then reflecting, well, why should... Um, investors be held to any different standard than listed companies with relation to purpose and also the, the, the evidence that suggests that companies that do articulate their purpose um, and, and have a handle on their culture or seek to shape their culture in a, in a, in a way that aligns to their, their strategy um, and their objectives do well. One of the other features within the code is the expansion outside of listed equities into other uh, areas, other asset classes. And specifically, that means fixed income and real assets. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how, how does the code try and reconcile these disparate, you know, investment periods, uh, different forms of rights, responsibilities to demonstrate stewardship? So traditionally, the, the stewardship code was really about a tool to make the UK corporate governance code more effective. And what we see is that, that the landscape of investment is changing and really the, the principles of stewardship can absolutely be applied in other asset classes. Maybe not across the board in all asset classes, but it can certainly be um, extended beyond UK listed equity. So how are you exercising your rights in other listed um, other listed investments outside of the UK? Fixed income is absolutely an area that you can exercise rights over, your, for example, your contract. Um, and I think there's a lot more that a lot more of the principles of stewardship that apply outside of listed equity than than you might think. Yeah. I think I think this is probably one of the really exciting bits of what we'll see in the reporting, actually, because I think you know there's a fairly well understood expectation of what stewardship of listed equity looks like now, right? But this is a much more evolving landscape in terms of what people will already. The people who are leaders in this are saying they're doing in fixed income. Um, I think really, if you talk to a lot of private equity people, they'll tell you that everything they do is stewardship, right? Because that's what they—that's the whole model. And so it'll be really interesting to see how it evolves and what people do say. This is what we do here, and actually, we really don't do anything there in our whatever quant fund of this or that. And that's fine. And it comes back again to this point about trying to get the transparency and what we're trying to do is say we think you should be doing stewardship across all different asset classes so tell us what you're doing and why and then probably what is really good in the first year will be overtaken as people go on the journey and we'll be, where we are in year five will be pretty different but so we've set out in our guidance some expectations around um, listed equity and fixed income because we think that's the sort of easiest bits to get your hands around mm -hmm. And I think the rest of it, we need to see how that evolves. So again, we're not trying to catch people out. We're really trying to encourage people to, to really get to grips with this stuff across their yeah. investment universe. And it's a really useful exercise, frankly. Um, 
even if these answers aren't out there, um, just to keep pushing the boundaries across asset classes. But I do, I wonder when you have sort of set the goal lines now beyond listed equities to, to fixed income and real assets, is it because you have sort of identified some, some set of best practices or, or, or some standards out there or because, uh, we're at the point of, of needing more discovery? The reason for coming to that position was having a look at how um, savers and beneficiaries capital is invested and how that's allocated. And the next biggest chunk is in fixed income and then alternatives. You know, so that that's made sense for the next stage of, of stewardship. Absolutely. And we're already, as Jen said, already seeing a number of um, a number of investors taking those stewardship principles and applying them outside of their equity business. Yeah, I think that's right. So we've got we've got leading firms saying they're doing this stuff already. You know, we've got PRI signatories have been reporting across different asset classes for years. Um, so I don't think it's especially radical really to, to, to go outside of equities, but I do think it's exciting. To what degree does this also sort of create a space for funds that might have synthetic you know, or exposure to derivatives where, you know, they don't have uh, voting rights because they don't have ownership of that underlying share. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of story around engagement. I think the key thing for us is to understand how your approach differs. Mm. Yes. You know, why it differs, what you would seek to do in an ideal world and where you are limited to doing that because of either the construct or, or rights and, and, and access. That's right. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that's kind of the, the next frontier to a certain extent in that that is, you know, we have been really thinking about sort of real assets, fixed income. I think, you know, synthetics, commodities, it'd be fascinating to hear what people's approach is. Um, but I think it's fair to say that clearly that's going to be evolving much more than we yeah. expect to see in others. And that, and that again... That's okay. What would you say to some of the trepidation, some of the anxiousness uh, by uh, signatories or potential signatories that, that look at this and maybe some, some anxiousness about the rigor of reporting alongside a lot of other reporting that's on its way, the EU taxonomy and, and uh, uh, green bonds, et cetera. And secondly, how do you think about it in terms of differentiating firms? And what I mean by that is, does this, you know, and the rigor around this, um, does it separate larger firms from smaller firms that don't have those, uh, uh, the resources to, to do the reporting? Does it separate the better firms from the weaker firms? How do you think about it? It should definitely separate the better firms from the weaker firms, um, without a doubt, because I've even, you know, been able to determine on the simply the policy statement, which is a of the previous code, the statement of intent. You can tell the organisations that have thought about this that are having to um, try and come up with something that doesn't exist versus those that are doing it and going, oh, oh, so you just want me to say that? Oh, yeah, we totally do that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is about having the confidence to to say what you do. And, and not to be too worried about compliance and have a compliance mindset. Give me an example. I mean, what would be sort of a practical or pragmatic expectation for a, let's, let, let's actually start with a small firm that doesn't have a lot of resources to do this kind of reporting, but that certainly thinks about things in an 
but in well, a way that's consistent with you know best ESG practices. Well, if you take let's take the the, the first oh. principle purpose. I mean, irrespective of what size of organisation you are, you should be able to articulate your your the reason that you exist, what value you serve to your clients, beneficiaries, maybe even wider mm-hmm. society, and then and then you know what you do to deliver that why that how that shapes your business how that shapes your strategy that shouldn't matter whether you're you know a, a very large passive organization or a small boutique investor i think that's right one of the things that that comes up a, a fair bit actually in conversations we've had is well how many pages long should my report be how many examples do i need how many this how many and, and honestly my answer is i have no idea how many does it take to explain what you're doing you know and, and if you're a boutique, say you're a little boutique asset manager with a highly concentrated portfolio, right? You don't need as many people and resources to do great stewardship if you're only invested in 40 companies. Clearly, if you're a giant index fund provider, we're going to have different expectation of what you might say you've done and how you would explain that. And I think, again, I I think it'll all evolve over time. I think the main thing is, in some ways, I would hope it's an incentive to smaller firms to sign up because it's about being able to demonstrate what your approach is and why you think that's good. Like, what's your pitch on stewardship? And so if we've got a market that's working really well where people are reading these reports and understanding the differences, then it should be a real incentive for people to, to want to report well rather than a disincentive that they should want to hide from. Yeah, and I mean, take the take the principle around governance and processes and structure and accountability. I mean, that should be a lot easier in a, in a smaller firm than it will be in a sort of multi, um, multi-entity group. Let's change lanes a little bit. And I'm sort of curious on the uh, mechanics again of, of, of the code and, and what... Uh, what assurance means in terms of of this uh, of stewardship data for firms you know in the past um there's always been uh this sort of bias to go to external managers to assure that data how are you sort of balancing that you know with with more reporting and maybe an internal versus external assurance when we did the outreach on the new code uh, on what what we should do around assurance we would quite frequently be told that people did not find the external assurance of their policy statements to be particularly helpful. Some people did, and that's great. And that's obviously a relationship that was working well. But others told us, look, the internal processes we do are much more valuable to us. So what we wanted to do when we when we wrote the new code is to acknowledge that there's different approaches to getting this assurance. But because we've moved to this sort of annual activities report, this annual stewardship report, we're going to have an annual process where a senior person needs to sign this report off as being fair, balanced, and understandable. So they're going to inevitably need some kind of process for getting comfortable with what's in that report. So whether whether they do that with an internal assurance process, whether they use a an external assurance provider is really up to them and, and making sure that they feel happy. But what we want to do again is understand what they've chosen and why. Hmm. So Jason, you mentioned how the how does the code interrelate with with other frameworks out there and other standards and i i don't see it as being conflicting absolutely see it's complementary it is quite different it provides a sort of consistent framework where a number of different types of organizations can report 
And what that allows is it allows for asset owners to have that standardized framework to, to compare and contrast when they're making their disclosures. And certainly then if you were able to to communicate or distill some of that information to members and beneficiaries and other other stakeholders, again, there would be comparable information that they, they could use. But, you know, we understand that there are pressures to report against these different frameworks. And you can absolutely use some of the disclosures that you provide to PRI or, or, or other um, other frameworks and, and use that to fulfill the reporting expectations for the code. It does all need to be in a single place and it all needs to be very readable and accessible. But, you know, it's not complete duplication. Okay. One thing... I think it's worth touching on is is sort of what what uh, the future holds for the FRC, you know, itself. Um, we've seen over over the last uh, number of years the Kingman Review in the shadow of the global financial crisis and, and potentially some of the criticism it's received. Um, and, and we just finished up with the Bryden Review uh, uh, last month. So, uh, you know, it, clearly it looks like the FRC in some shape or form will have much more sort of regulatory power around this, which is fantastic, which will reinforce uh, this new code. What else do you see? Well, gosh, yes, we're certainly at the beginning of a period of change. Well, perhaps in the middle, in fact, of a period of change. We've had three big reviews relevant to the work of the FRC. So Kingman, as you as you noted, into sort of how the regulation should work. Uh, the CMA did a review of the, the big four auditors. And then Bryden, just before Christmas, who reported on really what is audit and what should audit be in the future. And that review also sort of touches on what should reporting look like in the future. And, and so I think you've got to look at all of that holistically and say, right, there are a bunch of themes here. So there's things about corporate governance. So what what should be in and what should be out? Should we have a, a SOX type regime in the UK? To what extent should we want... Um, interventionist regulation versus not uh, then you've got kind of a whole bunch of stuff around what should be in company reporting and that touches on all this ESG data and reporting and that's clearly critical here and then ha- what gets audited who's the auditor how does that get regulated and so there's definitely a whole bunch of change coming I think we are you know we're working really closely as the FRC with the department uh, so Bayes uh, who are our sponsoring department, as the government looks at how to take these reviews forward. Um, but I think as we move through the transition towards whatever we land up with and, and, and when we get to being the audit reporting governance authority, what the powers are, you know, it's, it's important to make sure that we keep engaged with stewardship code signatories and, and others in terms of making sure we build the right framework is actually a great opportunity for people to to get involved in principle four on their <laughs> market-wide risks they can always give me a call um but you know that these these things are going to take a bit of time you're talking about in in many instances primary legislation that needs to come into place uh so so we at the frc we have a new leadership team in place now we have a new chair and a new ceo and we're certainly taking forward as many of the recommendations as we can absent the legislation and then really it's about working with uh, government to, to keep this all moving forward. Yeah. 
The last question I wanted to make sure to ask is, is some of the outreach and engagement activities that uh, the FRC is doing right now with the introduction of the new code. So, Claudia, can you sort of talk about some of those? Yeah, so we um, we did a lot of outreach to sort of over the last couple of years, and it's been really helpful. We want to continue that and take that to the next phase and really you know, spend this year communicating our expectations around the code, um, allaying any concerns that, that signatories have about sort of the the approach that we're going to take and and trying to give them confidence that you know they need to apply the spirit of the code and and and, and do the best job they can and you know it would be iterative we would be able to take a take a um, report and, and provide feedback so yeah we're going to do a whole lot this year really focusing on asset owners and and getting them in a position to be able to report when they're ready to on asset managers and focusing on some um, you know areas that we haven't previously had strong relationships so looking at the master trusts for example um, corporate pension schemes because you know there's a lot of um, a lot of interest now from that area so I think it's worth mentioning you know we're always trying our best to get the message out there so Claudia and I actually did an FRC podcast on the stewardship code not long ago, which uh, I would very much encourage people to listen to. Um, but, you know, we do our best. We reach out as, as best we can. We speak at events. We kind of try to be out there. But please, if anybody would like to engage with us or get involved, you know, feel free to reach out to us and we, we'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah. So we'll be doing sort of group events and um, various speaking engagements and, and able to, for example, go and speak to boards or speak to the pension funds, um, speak to managers and, and we'll continue that outreach. What we're not going to do is we're not going to give a template or um, or a sort of past paper of how to fulfill the stewardship code. We really want people to innovate and try their best and we'll see where best practice lands at, at the end of that first year. Great. And now, here's the practitioner discussion. To start, an integral part behind adoption of the UK Stewardship Code will be support by the LGPSs, or Local Government Pension Schemes. So I want to open up this discussion with Michael Marshall, who's the Director of Responsible Investment and Engagement at LGPS Central. I asked him, what does the code mean for the LGPSs, and why is it important? Well, I think there'll be a significant driver because in their regulations, it says that local authority funds should become signatories to the code. It's not a direct must. It's not a complete imperative. But that expectation has been set there. And that expectation may go up, broadly speaking, within asset owner regulations, whether it's local government or other occupational pension schemes. There is only one direction of travel here, and that is upwards. So I would expect more LGPS funds to become signatories to the code. And it might be the case that that is compelled by the people that write the guidance. Why is the new code important? Well, I think actually the code's very significant. This code becomes the global standard, the global highest standard for stewardship. And it may be the case that other markets follow what the UK have done. Two of the most important aspects that I would say are new in this code and weren't quite there in the previous version are firstly that the definition of stewardship isn't just about what you do after you've invested, it's also about capital allocation. And secondly, this code refers specifically to climate change in principles four and seven. And that's a significant departure from previously, where you could get away with talking about corporate governance. Now there's a clear expectation from the FRC that climate change should be a part of your stewardship activities. I asked the same question to Mylin Nago, who heads ESG investment at Blue Bay Asset Management. 
Well, I'm actually really excited about the code because I think it's um, a long sort of needed expansion uh, um, in so many different levels um, from a practical level that it explicitly recognises that stewardship is a concept that's valid beyond equities per se um, across a range of other asset classes. So I think that's really important. Um, I think the concept of stewardship, I, I like the way that they framed it to be actually broader, to be a more of a holistic focus that it's not just about what you have access to at the end of retirement, but it's actually the world that you're retiring into, that sort of quality of life. I really like that um, on there. So I think that's great. Um, and I think it also just prompts maybe all the stakeholders in the value chain to actually realign how we look at this, because I think some of the problems we're into today about short-termism have come about because I think there are, I've heard there have been unintended consequences in the investment value chain, which have led to these disconnects, um, which have sort of resulted in sort of maybe people losing focus on what we're here at the end of the day to do, which is for us as managers is to manage the, the assets of our clients and make sure that we're able to deliver um, and sort of grow those assets for them. And here's Honor Fell, who is Vice President of Responsible Investment at Reddington. So from a consultant perspective, I think stewardship is going to be incredibly important uh, this year. It's going to be important for us, but, but particularly for all of our UK pension fund clients. And not just because of the UK stewardship code, uh, but more broadly because of the Shareholder Rights Directive 2, um, the requirements for pension schemes. And these kind of new regulations, which are adding requirements for the statement of investment principles to address stewardship and arrangements with asset managers and really focusing on promoting long term decision making and ensuring that asset managers are aligned with trustee policies. And the SRD2 has got enhanced reporting requirements and reporting that will need to be made public. So there are definitely parallels with the new stewardship code. Um, the stewardship code is just taking it a step up. Um, and saying, well, there's a new baseline from regulation for, for UK pension funds. Um, and so if you want to really go above and beyond, the Stewardship Co is kind of pointing out how you do that and what areas you'd want to work on. I also asked how the code resets expectations in stewardship and what does it mean for underlying asset managers? So how does this rebase expectations for external fund managers? And do we get to a point where this has to be a requirement for getting assets within the LGPS. It could be, it could get to that stage. Historically, we haven't been there because of the previous bias towards UK equities. Some of the asset classes we've been going after, we've asked the question, are you a signatory? And if the fund manager is not, but has a very credible approach to ESG and to stewardship, then we're, we don't think they're unappointable for that reason. Going forward, given that the code now applies globally and to all asset classes and is very well intentioned, very well written, that might become a more difficult conversation. We work with a number of clients who already have a policy that they support the, the UK Stewardship Code and they expect that their managers um, will be supportive and, and will be kind of taking those principles on board and, and acting in accordance with them. And I expect that those type of clients will be likely to keep that reference in their policies. Um, they'll be supportive of the updated code and expecting their managers to be addressing the new code on, on a complier explain basis. Um, so that, that's the first group of clients. Um, but I think there's a second group of clients that are becoming increasingly aware of, of the stewardship code and of kind of broader implications of stewardship. 
And I think that in a similar way, um, Comply or Explain will become the baseline for them. I think one of the challenges of stewardship for many investors, whether you're equity um, or otherwise, is the issue of time horizons. I think what's happened in the market and why this code is so important and other industry initiatives is to sort of force people to move away from that short termism because it's such a natural thing you end up sort of focusing on. And in a way you need to, it's not that it's not important because you need to look after the short term to be around for the long term. Um, but you need to get that perspective. And sometimes I think if you're equity, you do get into that short term. But actually the interesting thing with um, debt is because you've got different um, sort of issuance of different sort of maturities, you can have what we would call sort of short dated bonds with five years, maybe maturity versus more longer dated bonds like 20 to 30 years, is that you can actually have that conversation because you'll be looking at where you're investing in terms of the maturity, the yield, where you are in the capital structure. And you look at where your materiality of financial risk and sustainability risk is, and you can actually have that conversation orientated round. For example, if you're invested in a more long dated bond, then the issue of climate change is very real to you, very important in terms of how that bond is going to be priced now and in the future. So it's very legitimate for you to ask that question about what is that long-term direction of travel and if that leads you to be uncomfortable or um, not necessarily assured you might think about actually do you actually have exposure to that issuer for a short dated bond versus a longer dated bond so I think that's another really important area of opportunity that we haven't really explored as an industry. And of course one of the key features in the new code is the expansion outside of listed equities into other asset classes like real assets and fixed income. I think this is actually one of the most important and significant steps that the 2020 version of the code will make versus 2012. There will no longer be an excuse for uh, fund managers that run multiple asset classes answering uh, ESG reports or stewardship report requests by saying we have a wonderful equity stewardship team and we vote our UK shares in a particular way. The expectation now is that whatever the asset class, if you believe that um, investment stewardship and bearing in mind that the, the very definition of stewardship has changed, so it's not just about engagement and voting. If you believe stewardship adds value to your process, you should be doing it and providing disclosure so that your um, clients and their beneficiaries um, have uh, confidence in you as a fund manager. What we do see is there's a huge amount of change. If we look at overall ESG integration, we do an annual survey of all of our rated managers and just under three quarters of them say that they've changed their way that they integrate ESG into their investment process over the 12 months preceding the survey. Uh, so I think that just shows the real rapid pace of change here. Um, again, a kind of similar number, about three quarters believe that stewardship is important. As you dig down into the different asset classes, you see that there's real differences between asset classes. And I think that that's a number which will be really rocketing up with the increased uh, scrutiny on this area, but also kind of the increased understanding of the importance of stewardship. I think there are some areas that obviously, I think in terms of principles, they're very valid principles. It doesn't matter what asset classes you, you're in. It should definitely be about looking at long term. It should definitely be about taking a, cons- a considered and thoughtful approach to looking about how you sort of grow and enhance and preserve those assets that you're, you're managing. But it does represent some challenges in terms of, I guess, 
how people have been thinking and framing about stewardship um, has actually got quite an equity bias. So generally, it's sort of discussed in two areas in terms of proxy voting. And then secondly, in terms of um, engagement. Now, obviously, the first of those two tools, um, us as fixed income um, investors don't really have access to that because we're not owners. We're lenders um, of capital to the company. So we don't have access to the proxy vote. So that's less something that we, we have exposure to. And actually, if we did have exposure to, that would mean something's gone wrong, which is actually a situation we don't want to be in. Um, the other instance is obviously engagement. And here I think that's a totally legitimate uh, and valid uh, and actually right thing to do and something we should be doing as debt investors, because that's essentially about interacting with the securities that, um, that we're investing in to make sure that we, we are making them the most informed investment decisions about the future sustainability of that investment. But I guess when you are thinking about engagement, um, it's to what extent maybe the rights and influences will vary for equity um, investors versus debt. Because we are not owners, uh, we, we can't uh, necessarily sort of prescribe as many sort of maybe um, some of the conditions or some of the asks that we might have. But um, I'm very, very much of the view that we do have rights and we do have responsibilities. Um, what it just forces us to do, I think, is just be a bit smarter and think about where those rights and um, responsibilities and sort of levers of influence um, really differ through the issuance chain. I guess what I mean by that is, for example, we actually have uh, more rights when it comes to primary issuance versus sort of um, debt um, issuance in the secondary market. We have more rights when there are pl private placements versus public placements. Um, if companies need, need to refinance, we should definitely be doing that. Um, there's opportunities definitely in the primary market in terms of sort of looking at the terms and the covenants to see whether we can actually codify um, that in. And I guess to overcome some of the sort of challenges of influences, there's nothing to stop us collaborating with other debt investors and actually other equity investors to actually sort of collectively grow that influence. That's a great way to finish. So it's been fascinating to discuss what the revised UK Stewardship Code means for investors, how the notion of stewardship is extending well beyond the traditional view of equities, and why expectations and approaches in this area will only get more rigorous going forward. So I'd really like to thank you all for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here with Jen Sisson and Claudia Chapman from the Financial Reporting Council, Michael Marshall from LGPS Central, Honor Fell from Reddington, and My Linda Go from Blue Bay Asset Management. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.